that doesn't always happen. I did a, a Ash Wednesday service once, and two people showed up, and uh, that was really weird service. Anyway, um, well, let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll dive in. The Lord be with you. Lord, thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for uh, Mockingbird Conference. Thank you for just your presence here uh, this weekend. We pray uh, that you would lead us by your spirit during this time, that anything that's not of you uh, would be quickly forgotten. We pray for outpouring of your spirit, your joy, your grace, and especially your help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, thank you for coming. Um, there's a chord here that I'm going to try not to trip over, so if I'm doing a little bit of this, just bear with me. Uh, my name is Dave Johnson. I, um, I'm a priest, been a priest 20-something years. Um, my wife and I have been married like 32 years, and six grown kids are all out of the nest, and um, that's okay. That's, that's okay. So Steph and I are enjoying uh, just me and Steph in our apartment with our cat. And uh, who eats too much. And uh, so we're in that phase of life. Um, I used to work on staff with Dave Zoll down at Christ Church in Charlottesville back in the day. Um, had, I, I led the fellows program. It was sort of a postgraduate program, mostly UVA students. Sam Bush came through that. And now I'm here watching Sam Bush just do an amazing job speaking. And I just feel older. And uh, anyway, so that's my background. Um, Dave Zoll's the man. You can't not like Dave. He's one of those guys that just try not to like him. It's not going to work. You have to like Dave's all. Um, but when it comes to father issues, um, no one's neutral. When it come, if I were to ask you, tell me about your dad, you will immediately have some kind of emotional something. So when I do premarital counseling, one of the early things we talk about, come on in wherever you can find a space. Sorry, we're kind of just anywhere it's a super comfortable floor, real comfortable, tile floor. But anyway, anywhere that you want to be. Um, when, I would do, when I do premarital counseling, you know, I always talk, tell me about your parents. Tell me about their relationship, like their relationship, and then about your relationship with them. Tell me about your mom. Uh, tell me about your dad. I'm going to focus on dad issues today, um, not mom issues. I think that's kind of a separate thing. Um, Sigmund Freud, that was kind of his deal, <laughs> um, as far as I know. But when I ask people about, you know, tell me about your dad, there's always an emotional. Some guys are like, oh, God, I love my dad. God, my dad's my hero. Taught me how to throw a curveball. You know, paid my way through college. When I wrecked his car, he got me a new car. Like, they'll tell me all these great stories. Some people, um, they'll say all these, yeah, you know, I didn't know. We weren't as close as I would have liked. He worked a lot, but I respect him. He's a good guy. And some guys... I remember one guy said, um, tell me about your dad. And he turned beet red, and he just was like, you could just see the anger. And he said, um, can we not say we did? I said, yeah, we can do that. We went on to talk about fantasy football or whatever and then worked our way back <laughs> to premarital, right? So there's nobody's neutral when it comes to their dad. Like it immediately hits this connection. And when you read literature, um, the dad issues thing just keeps popping up. I mean, Hamlet is loaded with dad issues. A lot of Jane Austen stuff. It's one of the recurring themes. Uh, certainly Charles Dickens. Um, and even a lot of great films, even lowbrow comedies, you'll see this. I mean, Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby, one of the most profound films ever, is all about father issues, stepbrothers. Um, Adam Sandler's kind of had this resurgence of late 
of popularity. But every single one of his movies, there's father issues in it. Click, Billy Madison. I mean, ridiculous lowbrow comedies, but um, that show Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Andy Samberg, he keeps referring to his lieutenant as his dad and then apologizing. Like the whole, like it's a hilarious show. But there's like this undercurrent of, God, he really has a screwed up relationship with his dad. That's unfortunate. And um, what can happen with, with your dad issues, your father issues, is that um, something will trigger it. So you're living, all of you are type A or you wouldn't be at this conference. So all of you are very, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't bother to be here. You wouldn't go to New York City, which is such a relaxing place, so easy to find your way around, and, and come sit you know, on the tile floor of a basement in a crypt. You, you wouldn't do that if you weren't type A. And so type A people are busy, and you're, you're, you know, you're getting stuff done, and then things will pop up out of nowhere. And so you feel it, and you compartmentalize, and you keep going. And so I'm going to show a clip. Um, from one of my favorite theologians, Ted Lasso. Um, it's a great show. It's really, you know, it's one of those shows you enjoy, and then they'll drop these little poignant bombs, and you're like, whoa. So um, I hope the sound and audio and all work. We'll give this a shot. Let's see. Okay, I don't have a sound. Is the sound guy still here? <laughs> okay. Do you have memorized? I do. <laughs> All right, we're going we're to scrap the clips. I can, I can tell you what happened. So Ted Lasso, um, he has panic attacks. He deals with anxiety. And um, it's great that this show kind of just takes that issue on, like head on. And so he has these breakdowns, these panic attacks. And I uh, decides he's going to see a counselor, but it's all a game to him because he doesn't think he really needs it. And he thinks counseling and therapy is a scam. And so his first appointment's kind of like not great. Well, then out of left field, he calls. This is what that clip was. I'm sorry, it doesn't work. He calls the therapist and he says, my dad killed himself when I was 16. And uh, he goes, and that, that was really hard. He goes, maybe, maybe that has something to do with some of the issues I have. <laughs> I, I love that. And the therapist is like, yeah, she goes, yeah, probably so, Ted. You want to you come in and talk about it? And so he comes in, and he tells this story. Coming home from school at 16, finds his dad upstairs, used a gun, calls 911, goes downstairs, gets a Coors Light out of the fridge, starts trying to figure this thing out. And in this, in this clip, he calls the therapist, hangs up, and then some of the other coaches are saying, hey, we're going to go grab a beer. You want to come? He's like, no, my son's got a recital. I'm going to watch it online. And, and so that's how it works, right? So you, you have something that will bite you, but you have to get on because you're all type A overachievers. So you have to get on to the next thing anyway. So we compartmentalize it, and we can't really do anything about it at that moment. And so I love the way they show that in the clip. Now, when it comes to, to wounds from your father, um, they can be very deep and they can be very uh, pervasive and invasive. So, like, let me give you a metaphor. Uh, my mom's dad uh, was in Patton's Third Army, World War II, saw battle, um, was in a, um, a jeep that hit a landmine, and it um, killed the guy he was with, and it filled one of his legs with shrapnel. 
Now, that shrapnel wound was so deep and so pervasive that there was no way for the surgeons to just go in and take care of it. So this is the crazy thing. This happens in, like, what, 1944, 45? 20, 30, 40 years later, pieces of shrapnel would surface on his leg. And only then could he go to the doctor to have it removed. And I think that's, that's what some of these emotional things are like uh, when we talk about our father issues. It's like some of the wounds are so deep and pervasive that you can't just go in. You can't go to a breakout session. I wish you could walk out of here. Got that taken care of. Um, um, God, if I could figure that out, I would make so much money. All right, I would market that, um, but it pops up when it pops up. If you have children of your own, like when your kids hit certain ages, um, it'll trigger stuff that happened when you were that age. It's the weirdest thing. I remember playing catch with my son in this backyard. He's like seven years old. I'm on his flashbacks. It's crazy. And sometimes they're good memories, not all bad. And I want to say as an aside, um, you know, your father, like you, um, is or was a sinful human being in need of God's grace. With, with, he was totally um, neurotic, like you, had tons of baggage from his own childhood, um, work stress, physical stress, probably wasn't passionate about paying the rent every month, but he did it. It's important to think about all the good things that your dad did too, but I am going to kind of focus on um, the harder stuff a little bit today. So these, these wounds can happen. They're deep, pervasive. Things surface when they surface, and then um, you have to deal with it. All right, I think they got it now, so let me see if I can get back to that scene. Let me try one more time. Maybe it's just that scene. <laughs> Swing and a miss. All right, no problem. My life is full of swings and misses. Um, East of Eden by John Steinbeck, which is a great book. Um, Grapes of Wrath is sort of, but I think East of Eden is just as powerful. Listen to what he says when a kid finds out their parents are human beings. They're not perfect. When a child first catches adults out, when it first walks into his grave little head, <laughs> that adults do not have divine intelligence that their judgments are not always wise, their thinking true, their sentences just, his world falls into panic desolation. The gods are fallen, and all safety is gone. And there is one sure thing about the fall of gods. They do not fall a little. They crash and shatter or sink deeply into the green muck. It's a tedious job to build them up again. They never are quite the same. And the child's world is never quite whole again. It's an aching kind of growing. Yikes. You, you remember the moment or a moment in your life when you realized your dad was a human being. And your mom too. If you watch the recent Brooke Shields documentary on Hulu, it talks about her mom was such an alcoholic. And she grew up with Laura Linney you know, from Ozark. They were childhood friends. And so they were shout, in this documentary they tell about how they had to navigate their mom's Brooke's mom's alcoholism, even as, you know, seven, eight years old. And some of you had to deal with that. And so you remember what it was that made you realize that your, your parents aren't perfect. Your dad certainly wasn't perfect. Maybe you realized that your dad, you know, cheated on your mom. Or you realized that your dad 
um, wasn't honest with business. Got away with stuff, but if you watch The Irishman on Netflix, Robert De Niro plays the hitman, right? And his kids, adult daughters, find out late in life, and they don't want anything to do with him. He goes to the bank to visit one of his daughters, and she's a teller. She puts the clothes shop sign up, leaves. And the last clip in the movie, he's by himself in the, you know, the assisted living, all by himself, sitting there. Nobody will see him. His kids will have nothing to do with him. Roll credits. And so when your own life, you can think about the moment when you realize, you know, your dad's a human being. He screwed up. He needs grace just like you do. But that can be really hard if you're a kid because your dad's supposed to be your hero. Your dad's supposed to be the man. He's supposed to be right and kind and just and patient and always have a $20 bill when you need it. Always. It's not supposed to be human. So that's a, that's a weird one. Um, I'm going to start with uh, some positive pictures of fatherhood. So, um, and then I'm going to talk about some negative pictures of fatherhood. I'm going to talk about how God can bring healing and help where you might have father issues. And that's what we're going to do. All right. So some positive pictures of fatherhood. So my dad, one of my favorite memories of my dad. I was six years old. And um, I went to work with my dad on Saturdays. I grew up in northern Virginia, right near D.C., so my dad worked for the government in Crystal City, Arlington, and he always worked Saturdays. But sometimes on Saturdays I would go in and we'd stop at 7-Eleven, get me a Slurpee on the way in, football cards, whatever. Those were great memories. And then after work one day we we went to the commissary and he was flipping through albums. Remember record albums? This is back in the mid-'70s, right? And he's looking at this Olivia Newton-John record. I think he had a crush on Olivia Newton-John, but who didn't, right? I mean, it was 1975 or whatever. I mean, everybody did. My mom probably did. Like, I get it. And so, um, I mean, good night. Um, and I found, a, I was flipping through the kid records, and I found this Walt Disney Pirates of the Caribbean record. And, I, and he was like, yeah, I'll get that for you. And so I, I became obsessed with pirates. So my sixth birthday party was a pirate-themed birthday party. And we had, like little treasure chests, and we all dressed up like pirates and the whole thing. Well, the highlight of the party, we're all doing these ridiculous games, and six-year-olds are all running around. And the door opens, and in comes my dad dressed like a pirate. And he was in the Navy, so he had his Navy sword. Arr, arr, and I was like, whoa, dad. And, and, but he said, no, my name's whatever, you know, now. And, and I was like, oh, my God, dad's a pirate. <laughs> and it was this great moment. And... um. So years later, like, I'm going to the beach, and I always buy pirate T-shirts and, you know, surrender the booty and all those ridiculous beach pirate, you know, the ridiculous <laughs> ones, the really stupid ones, right? No, you know, and my kids were like, Dad, why are you so into pirates? And I was like, I really don't know. And then Father's Day came, they gave me a Blackbird or Blackbeard pirate action figure. It's in my office. People ask me, why is that in here? And it's like, I think it goes back to that six-year-old birthday party. That was just a great moment in my life. And that's one of my favorite moments of my dad. Um, So here's a second kind of positive image of of a father figure, um, literal father. So Brendan Manning, any of you all heard of Brendan Manning? He was a writer, was a Catholic priest, got married, therefore not a Catholic priest anymore. That kind of didn't, you know, um, alcoholic. Had lots of going back to it, even late in life. Ended up divorced. Um, but he wrote this book called The Furious Longing of God. 
And he talks about um, the true story of a college student named Larry Mullaney, um, who shared with Brennan what happened um, when he was home from break for college. So the break's done, and, and the dad's riding the bus with him back to, for him to take the train back to college. Here's what Brendan Manning writes. The father and son ride the bus in silence. They get off the bus as Larry has to catch a second one to get to the airport. Directly across the street are six men standing under an awning, all men who work in the same textile factory as Larry's dad. They begin making loud and degrading remarks. Look at that fat pig. Larry was super overweight. Look at that fat pig. Man, if that pig was my kid, I'd hide him in the basement. I'd be so embarrassed. Another said, I wouldn't. If that slob was my kid, he'd be out the door so fast you wouldn't know uh, if he was on foot or horseback. And these, these brutal salvos continued. But then here's what happens. Larry's father reached out, embraced his son, kissed him. And he said, Larry, if your mother and I lived to be 200 years old, that wouldn't be long enough to thank God for the gift he gave us in you. I'm so proud that you're my son. This was right in front of his co-workers. So here's what happened. Larry Mullaney eventually became a missionary in South America because, as Brendan Manning says, his father had the guts to get out of the foxhole and choose the high road of blessing in the face of cursing and taunts. His father looked deeply into his son's eyes, saw the good in Larry that Larry couldn't see for himself, affirmed him with a furious love, and changed the whole direction of his son's life. I mean, that's the power that a good father can have. So here's another picture. Um, so my wife and I have uh, six kids, um, boy, girl, 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 boy. And we went to all their middle school graduations. You ever suffer through a middle school graduation? Yeah. I mean, remember, you ever really enjoyed a middle school graduation? What I meant to say. And um, so we were at the middle school graduation for our oldest daughter, Kate. And... Um, you know, they give awards for everything. I mean, it just doesn't stop. Perfect attendance. And I wanted to say, hey, to the parents, thanks for sending your kid to school when they were sick and, and you know, and making my kids sick and then I got sick. But, hey, you got the perfect attendance certificate, so enjoy that. That'll change your life, I promise. So many people care about that, right? And so they do all the awards, and then they start giving out the diplomas, and they would go up the steps their name's called, they walk across the stage, they do the photo op, most of them have braces, right, because they're all like 14, you know, <laughs> they do the photo op, and it's going along smoothly, and all of a sudden, there's a kid in a wheelchair, bang, and they, it, it, they can't fit up the stairs, Nobody's, nobody thought to look, at, I mean, just like I didn't have the audio today, I mean, things just happen, right, and so in that moment, there was this awkward kind of hush, and like, what are we going to, and the guy, instead of walking down with the diploma, they, he, everybody kind of froze. When then the dad scooped the kid up. It was this incredible scene. Now, this kid had so many physical and mental disabilities. I, don't, I, I think that's politically correct to put it that way. If it's not, I apologize. This kid would never have been able to have a perfect attendance award. I mean, just the fact that this kid could get to any class at all was like the amount of effort that would take. So he would never win any of these awards. He did have braces, all right? And so his dad scoops him up and he carries him across the stage and they give, you know, they give him his diploma and the, the place just, yeah. 
He got more applause than any other kid, even the valedictorian and with their, you know, hubris little eighth, eighth grade speech <laughs> about reaching for the stars and being all you can be and all that BS. And I, I just remember that was just such a great moment and such a powerful image. That's what God does for you. He just scoops you up. He's got you. Let's see. Sorry, my notes. I feel like I'm in high school. All right, Amy Poehler. She's one of my favorites. Um, I love Tina Fey. I love Kristen Wiig. I love Kate uh, McKinnon, all of them. But for me, Amy Poehler is the funniest woman who's ever been on SNL. I'll... I don't really want to debate about it. Like, I don't, if you think differently, that's fine, and I don't care, and you don't really care what I, and it's okay. So, but Amy Poehler wrote this book called Yes, Please. It's kind of a memoir slash, slash autobiography. Listen to what she wrote about her dad. This was very insightful. William Grinstead Poehler was born September 21st, 1946, in Waynesboro, Virginia. His mother, Anna, was first married to William, his father, who left right after he was born. For the first five years of his life, my father lived in a foster home. Anna remarried her new husband, Carl Poehler, adopted my father. The first day my father met my mother, he came home and told my grandfather, I have met the girl I'm going to marry. My dad was an elementary school teacher and also a financial planner. For my wedding, my father, his friends, and my uncles performed a surprise tap dance with top hats and canes. My dad is generous, nosy, and good at arm wrestling. And then Amy Poehler lists some of the things that her dad taught her. Listen to this. Eat whatever you want. (laughs) I love that. Girls can do anything boys can do. Street smarts are just as important as book smarts. Your mother is smarter than me, and I'm fine with that. You don't want to be the creepy dad. (laughs) It's okay to cry. These are things that Amy's dad taught her. It's okay to argue. And finally, she says, tell everyone you meet what your daughter does until your daughter asks you to stop. So Amy Poehler. And again, you know, um, the ripple effects of, of those moments, speaking up for your son in front of people that are insulting him, scooping up your kid when, when they can't get where they need to be. You know, teaching your kid just about the honest about your past, yeah, I was a foster kid, whatever, and I believe in you. Like the, all that stuff has ripple effects that just go on, right? So I'm going to show you another um, positive image. I'm going to hopefully get a. Can I try one more video clip? If it doesn't work, then I will not try any more. Let me see. Thanks for your patience with this. Nope, I need it. Don't worry, we'll get this verse. I know. I must have given them the wrong order of the clips. Let's see. Yeah, we'll do some Field of Dreams. Okay. My apologies. So we'll punt the clip. I'll tell you the clip. So this was like 10 or 12 years ago, and I was, you ever get, like, it was a Tuesday morning, and I just wanted to crank through my emails. For me, a happy email inbox is an empty one. 
I don't know if any, if any of you relate to that. Like you just, you love it when there's no new emails because you feel caught up, right? It's all a joke, but you know, I still feel it. And so I was cranking through the emails, just deleting the spam. And then I got one from a parishioner, this will inspire you. And I was like, oh God. And it was from a parishioner that was always saying, this will inspire you. And I'm like, no, it won't. I'm just trying to get emails done. I'm not in the mood to be inspired. And so I was so close to right-click delete, and I was like, oh, look at this doggone video. And I'm glad I did. So the video um, was Team Hoyt. So it's, any of you all are familiar with that. So Dick Hoyt um, and his son Rick, who was born in the early 60s with cerebral palsy, and, and they, the doctor said, you want to put him in an institution, he's going to have zero quality of life. There's, it will wreck your life to try to raise this kid. He's like, no, we're going to raise him. And so late, later on, like, um, Ricky becomes like a teenager. He kept growing. And he wanted to go on races, like with his dad pushing him through races. So this progresses until his dad starts pushing him through the Boston Marathon. Then he does the Ironman Triathlon. Like, if you think you're a good dad, just watch this video. You'll be like, I suck. I suck. Like, God. I went on a field trip and I was exhausted and now I feel like a loser watching this guy. And so, <laughs> yeah, it's true, right? And so it's, this video was his montage uh, from the Ironman triathlon. And so little Ricky, he, he's got cerebral palsy. He can't move his arms, can't do. So he's in a raft, all buckled in. And his dad, you know, it's a 2.4 mile swim. If you've ever swum, 200 yards, you know that 2.4 miles is a long swim. And he's, he pulls him the whole way. So it jumps, that's done. He scoops him up and then puts him in like this specially built stroller that was attached to his, his bike. Does like a 112 mile bike ride. 112 mile bike ride. And um, his son's like in the front, just enjoying a ride. But it's not always easy. Like when the salt water was sloshing on his face in the raft. He couldn't wipe his eyes. The sweat's pouring into his eyes on the bike. He couldn't wipe his eyes. Like, it's not all, all fun for Ricky. And so they get done with the 112-mile bike ride. That's not enough. So let's do a full 26.2-mile marathon. If you've ever run a marathon, you know it's not 26 miles. It's 26.2. That .2 will kill you. And so then it's footage of this whole, his dad's pushing him in this, like, stroller thing. And they get to the end. Like, I'm just, like, crying in my office. Like, she's inspiring me, but, like, I'm crying, right? And so, like, and at the end, everybody's just, you know, they're spraying water. And, and then the dad comes around, and he takes the helmet off Ricky's. And he's just, like, wiping all the sweat and the tears. And they're just laughing and the joy. And his dad did all the work. And, and his son was literally along for the ride. And that's, that's actually, gosh, that... Botox this morning were killer, but especially that second one. I think if you didn't figure out that kind of it's God's sovereignty kind of taking you through everything, at least I even got that. So, um, and, and this was a picture of what that could look like. Um, and so, again, that image. One more positive image, and then we'll, we'll get a little dark for a minute, and then it's gospel, which means we'll end in a good place because the gospel is good news, right? So um, I was going to talk... Um, uh, about some other stuff, but I decided after listening to, to Zal's great talk last night to weave in some John Lennon. So, Beatle freak, like 
billions of other people on the planet. So earlier this week, I went up to Central Park, and if you go to the 72nd Street West entrance, that's where that Strawberry Fields is, right? And imagine that, like, imagine mosaic on the, on the, and then, because that's right where the Dakota Hotel is, where John and Yoko lived. And I remember I was in sixth grade, so it's December 1980. I was watching Monday Night Football. I was obsessed with Monday Night Football, Howard Cosell. Some of, you, some of you oldies, the rest of you, don't worry about it. And so, um, and they said, yeah, John Lennon's been shot. He's dead. He's at the hospital. And then they said he's dead. And so anyway, it's up there. Well, his last album that Dave's all referred to briefly last night, it's called Double Fantasy. And he wrote this song for his second son, Sean. Now, John Lennon had, was married before, and they had, had a son named Julian who was born in 1963. So just as the Beatles are starting to really, but that marriage didn't work. So he gets together with Yoko later, and then Sean's born, um, 1975, and Sean and John had the same birthday, October 9th. So, yeah, coincidence. And so um, John felt like a failure as a dad with Julian. He felt like, okay, I got another chance. So I tried to be a better dad for Sean. And so he wrote this song um, that's on his last album. And it's for his son. Close your eyes, have no fear. The monster's gone. He's on the run. Your daddy's here. Beautiful, 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 beautiful boy. You'll cry in a minute. <laughs> if you don't, you don't have a soul. You need to ask God for a soul. <laughs> He'll give you one. <laughs> uh, before you cross the street, take my hand. Life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. That's a whole nother breakout session. Beautiful, 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 beautiful boy. Before you go to sleep, say a little prayer. Every day and every way is getting better and better. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful boy. Darling, 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 Sean. It's, yeah, it's so good. All right, so those are some positive kind of pictures. I want to share a couple sort of darker ones or negative ones, and then, and then we're going to get to the gospel, all right? So uh, any of you Pearl Jam fans? Do we have any Pearl Jam fans here today? All right, four of us. That's awesome. All right, so uh, I'll still use this illustration. So Eddie Vedder grew up um, thinking that someone else was his dad that wasn't, and that a family friend was that swung by sometimes to visit was actually his father. He didn't find out till he, that man had died. So he was like 14, he found that out. And so we always felt this longing to connect with his dad who was just the family friend that popped over. He had no idea. And so we wrote this song. It's on their first album. Well, well their album 10. It's called Release Me. And um, here's what Eddie Vedder sings. Oh, dear dad, can you see me now? I am myself like you somehow. I'll ride the wave where it takes me. I'll hold the pain. Release me. Oh, dear dad, can you see me now? I am myself like you somehow. I'll wait up in the dark for you to speak to me. I'll open up. Release me. Release me. Release me. Release me. Now, if you, you can see it live on YouTube. It was on the PJ20 documentary um that's incredible 
And um, trust me when I tell you that Eddie Vedder is not the only one in the dark talking to his dad, asking his dad to, to release him. And what we're going to see is that um, at the heart of uh, most people's father's issues is it's rejection on some level. That's always where it ends up going. Either rejection at birth, some of you maybe never met your dad, or some of you, um, your dad was there physically, but you just never felt emotionally connected. Some of you maybe had the sibling that was really close to your dad and you were the other one, right? Like, and that's just, you know, parents have favorites and there's sometimes we all have chemistry. Some chemistries fit together better than others. You know that. It's not complicated. But if you're not the one fitting in, it can hurt. And so, um, but it's rejection is at the heart of it, this idea that you're not good enough. Um, 30-30, ESPN series, 30 for 30. Anybody watch any of those? Okay, all right, like nine of ten of us that time. That's good. I'll take that. So they had this episode on Brian Ballsworth, um, who was a um, linebacker back in the late 80s, played for the Oklahoma Sooners, highly touted. Um, linebacker had the 80s mullet haircut, um, which is what you had to have if you were a linebacker in the 80s. And, um, but this episode talks about how he was never good enough for his dad. And his dad would watch every practice and take notes and, and like debrief Brian after every practice, not just the games, every practice. After games, he would make his son, after games, Friday nights late, he would make his son run laps for the mistakes he made during the game. And so um, here's what he says in this documentary. When I was in high school, I played scared. Some of you live scared. (laughs) Maybe at your job or maybe at home or somewhere. Why? When it comes to sports, it was never good enough. I didn't play well enough. There was always something wrong with something I did. Rick Riley at the Sports Illustrated columnist said this. Whatever Brian did, his dad wanted more. He could never just get a hug, great game. Instead, it was, how'd you miss him on that sweep? How'd you get fooled on that bootleg? His dad would make him run laps after practice. Brian was just a kid. He was not sure what was driving him. What was driving him was much darker than I think he wanted uh, to let on. You know, it's if some of you maybe had fathers where you were always trying to prove yourself, And so, like, if you got one B, oh, my God, your dad would come down on you. And so, and again, a lot of you, you're all overachievers, so this is probably connecting with more than one of you, right? And so, but this sense that, so every report card was like a peace offering to your dad, unless, you know, you're walking home from school and you're like, oh, shit, I got a B. Boy, I'm in for it, right? I meant to say, oh, spit, sorry about that. Um, don't want an explicit rating on this uh, breakout session that four people will watch. Um, and so, so it's like this, this peace offering to your dad, and it's like not good enough. Or maybe you're, you had a father who was always telling you how smart and accomplished his friend's son was. And he got into the college that you didn't get into. Maybe your dad made you apply to schools that you weren't interested in getting into, but because all his friend's kids were going there, you needed to apply and prove that you could get in there too. Type A kids tend to come from type A families, and there can be that dark underbelly with that. Um, And so you can feel the sense of rejection or failure if you don't think you've measured up, right? And so those are some dark kind of images 
of fatherhood, and maybe some of those connect. But again, I want to I want to zero in on rejection. Um, going back to John John Steinbeck in East of Eden. This is uh, listen to what he writes. The greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved, and rejection is the hell he fears. Let me repeat that. The greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved, and rejection is the hell he fears. I think everyone in the world, to a large or small extent, has felt rejection, and with rejection comes anger, and with anger, some kind of crime and revenge for the rejection, and with the crime, guilt, and there is the story of mankind. Wow. Some of uh, some of uh, type A overachievers are driven by their anger. All that energy's got to go somewhere, so you might as well be more productive, right? Get in better shape. Um, and so, but anger, what's always at the root of anger? It's always hurt every freaking time. And so the hurt, when it comes to father issues for a lot of the anger, is some kind of rejection. Now, that's the bad news. So let's bring in some gospel. Let's bring in some good news, all right? Um, in the Old Testament, we see... Um, this in King David, you may remember David was the youngest of eight sons. Jesse, uh, we know what Jesse did, I guess, in his free time, his father. And so um, the prophet, the judge Samuel comes to Bethlehem because God had told Samuel that one of Jesse's sons would be the next king of Israel after Saul. Samuel shows up. They're going to have a big party and a sacrifice. Everybody's invited except David. And you remember the story, Samuel, you know, looks at every one of the eight sons, oldest to youngest, well, the oldest seven, not this one, not this one, God's eaten, not this one, not this one. And I'm thinking the seventh one must have been like, sweet, when Sam, he got to me like, all right. And then he's like, not you either. And then there's this awkward moment as Samuel looks at Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse won't even refer to David by name. He says, yeah, there's one out in the field with the sheep. And then Samuel says, none of us are sitting down until he gets here. Go bring him here. And so that had to feel weird, right? So Jesse and his seven sons, they're just standing around with Samuel waiting. And then David's pulled from the sheep, you know, being a shepherd away from the sheep. And, and that's when he was anointed as the next king in the midst of his father and brothers that rejected him, that wouldn't even acknowledge his name. So when you read Psalm 23, thou hast anointed me in the presence of mine enemies. Maybe his enemies were his own family. And so what we see there, and some of you can relate to that. Some of you, the hardest people on the planet to connect with is your own parents or your siblings. And it hurts so much. Because like 99% of the other people on the planet, you get along with fine. But with them, like, nope. <laughs> right? Isn't that annoying? It's the worst. And so uh, that's what it was with David. And so here's the gospel. God didn't reject David, God actually chose the rejected one. And that God would never reject you, ever. So in, in any way that you may have been rejected by your earthly father, and even though you know he was a sinful human being just like you, it still hurts like heck. God would never do that. God's acceptance of you is total. It has nothing to do with your report card or how much money you make or whether your personal life is going great or it's a train wreck whether your marriage is thriving and spicy, whether your marriage is hanging on by a thread or dissolving right now. 
It doesn't hinge on any of that stuff. Whether you're a parent and you're a great parent or whether you're kind of a sucky parent right now because your kid's driving you crazy and you're trying to be patient and sometimes you're not. It doesn't hinge on any of that. God's acceptance of you is just 100% there. We get a glimpse of this at Jesus' baptism. Behold my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus hadn't done a single miracle yet, hadn't preached anything yet. It was all that total acceptance and total belovedness before Jesus actually did anything here. And that's true for you because you're in Christ. Scripture says that with the Holy Spirit, the primary work of the Holy Spirit isn't about tongues. It's not about whether you have the gift of leadership or administration where you take some silly diagnostic test to tell you what spiritual gift you have. It's so nuts. It's so ridiculous. The number one purpose of the Holy Spirit in your heart is to assure you that you are a beloved child of God, that you can call Almighty God Abba Father, which is what Jesus said. When you pray, say our Father. Call God your dad who's never rejected you. He's always accepted you. You know, um, there's so much rejection out there. And sometimes, sometimes dads were rejected and they don't know how to accept themselves and therefore they don't know how to accept you. I mean, you can just go a whole bunch of different directions with this. But at the heart of the gospel and at the heart of Pentecost, which we'll be up to in, I don't know, two or three weeks, remember that the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to assure you in your heart Romans 8, Galatians 4, to assure you in your heart that you can address God as, as Abba, as a child. In 1 John it says, Beloved, we are children of God <laughs> right now. That's awesome. You're, so your heavenly father has never rejected you, never will. In fact, Jesus is quoted. <laughs> if you have a red letter Bible, which I do, I like red letter Bibles. Oh, well, the, the words Jesus said are in red. I'm like, scholars can bicker. I don't care. I like the, the red words a lot. And so I, I just do. And I've got my degrees. Like, I'm not a slacker, but I like, the, I like the old King James red letter. And in Hebrews 13, verse 5, Jesus says, never will I leave you or forsake you. So on Calvary, um, on the cross, the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's really important that we distinguish here that Jesus did not say, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Because there's this stream in theology, I think it's really harmful, that God the Father could not look at his son in that moment. And It's not what Scripture says. So why would Jesus a moment later say, Father, in your hands I commend my spirit? His father had forsaken him. His father was right there the whole time because he would never forsake him and he won't ever forsake you or reject you. Some of you are rejected maybe because of your sexuality or rejected because of who you chose to marry or rejected because of where you chose to go to college or that you chose this career instead of that career, that you chose a career that you hope you can pay your next electric bill versus a career that you can pay everybody's electric bill and your whole family for the next 20 years. And so there's just some kind of sense of rejection and that's never from God. You're accepted. And you're forgiven and you're loved as you are. I'm going to talk for a second about like reconnecting for a second with earthly dads. So um, I don't know if you've read Bono's recent memoir called Surrender. Um, I'm a YouTube freak, like a lot of people my age. But Bono can be, he can be a little sanctimonious sometimes, I know. He could be just a little bit earnest, like, like just stop. 
but but Bono is incredible too. Like you don't want to you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater because you put all that stuff that stuff aside and there's this great stuff. Well, in this memoir, he talks about his anger with his dad. So let me give you a little bit of background. Um, Bono's mom died when he was 14. Died. A, same thing happened to Paul McCartney and John Lennon, by the way, and Madonna. They were all 14 when their moms died. Just, I'm not even going to charge you for that. So there's, there's something for you to know. You just, you know that. And so um, Bono had this rage against his dad, who was also a singer. His dad was a tenor, had a great voice. And so later in life, Bono also found out that one of his cousins was actually his half-brother, thanks to his dad and a, a fling with, yeah. So Bono had all this rage toward his father, Bob. So Bono's doing this interview with Rolling Stone and Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone, who liked to really go deep. And after they do the interview, um, let's see. After they do the interview, Jan Wenner, kind of off the record, says, you know what? Um, you owe your dad an apology. Listen, listen to what he wrote in this book. I think your father deserves an apology, Jan told me. Can you imagine the story from his perspective? Your father loses his wife, and he's left to bring up the two kids, and one of them is charging in his direction, coming for him all guns blazing. One of them is going to take him out by achieving all the ambitions he was afraid to have. Easter 2002, Allie and I visited a little chapel in France. I sat there in the chapel and apologized to my father, Bob Hewson. I'd forgiven him for his crimes of passion, but I'd never asked his forgiveness of mine. I'll never know if it was related to me asking for his forgiveness in that little chapel, but after my father died, something changed. What changed for me was my voice. I felt I got a couple notes added to my high range. I felt I was becoming a real tenor as opposed to a pretend one. I could ring those high notes like a church bell as I had never hit them before. It makes no scientific sense, of course, but I've heard it said that when somebody close dies, they leave you a kind of passing gift, some invisible will where you inherit a special blessing. Bob Hewson's final gift to me was to enlarge the one he gave me long before. I was now a true tenor. <laughs> thanks, Bono. Like, like, thanks for sharing that, man. Go back to being sanctimonious and earnest. That's okay. But, um, And so with your dads, even if your dad's dead, sometimes saying I'm sorry can, can bring healing. I'm sorry, Dad, that I didn't forgive you for cheating on my mom. I'm sorry that I never thanked you for all the things you did right. Like I never wondered if I was going to have dinner. I never wondered if I was going to live in a safe place and have air conditioning. I never thanked you, Dad, for all the things you did provide for me that I took for granted, even when I was a jerk to you. So, it, And it doesn't turn a blind eye to the dark stuff, but you can apologize. And even if your dad's dead, trust me, you're not the only one who talks to their dead father. I'm going to try one more clip, video clip. I hope this works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Life will go on. But um, from the movie Elizabethtown, any of you see Elizabethtown? Came out back in like 2005. Cameron Crowe, Orlando Bloom, and Kirsten Dunst. Orlando Bloom works for the shoe company, screws up the design, loses the company almost a billion dollars. 
So he goes back to his apartment. He's going to kill himself while he's about to kill himself on a bike that he's mounted all these knives on. He's going to stab himself to death. It's pretty sick. Anyway, he gets the phone call from his mom that his dad just died. Come home for the funeral. We need your help. So he goes home to, to uh, Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and there's a scene at the end where he goes on a road trip with the urn with his dad's ashes. He's like pouring out his heart. So let me see if I can get that clip. Help, I need somebody, help. the last clip because if we can't hear it we can't hear it i'll talk about it though so in that clip from elizabethtown uh, again what we see orlando bloom pouring out his heart to his dad's ashes that was still healing for him some of you might need to go to your dad's grave or go to a chapel in france like bono did and 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 start talking to your dad like that's okay to do that like it really is i'm going to share um Two more illustrations really quickly, and then I'll wrap up because I know we're running a little late. Just give me like four minutes. Is that cool? And so um, our first one, Bruce Springsteen did a set on Broadway here several years back, like a bunch of days in a row. And if you, if you, if you look it up on YouTube, Springsteen on Broadway, the song My Father's House, he had a very tortured relationship with his dad who was really depressed. His dad, when he wasn't at work, would sit in the dark smoking cigarettes in the kitchen all the time. That's what he did. And Bruce never felt like he connected with his dad and was always angry about that. And then in this song, he talks about how he was too stupid to realize his dad suffered from depression. 
and he said that he had a dream one night, and in this dream, um, his dad was in the audience watching him perform. And, and in the middle of the concert, Springsteen runs down and kneels down next to his dad, and they look up at Bruce playing on stage, and he says, Dad, you know that guy that's on fire up there? Uh, that's how I see you. Right? Oof. And um, so that healing is dad's been dead a long time. God can even bring healing in those places. All right? And one last thing from Field of Dreams. You know the movie, um, and I'll close with this. It's a word of hope. You will also get, even if you talk to an urn or you talk to a grave or you talk to the air and your dad's buried somewhere else or maybe his ashes were spread in the ocean or whatever along the highway, um, that's okay. You will get your chance in heaven to reconnect. So at the end of Field of Dreams, you know the story. If you build it, he will come. Um, Kevin Costner, Roy Kinsella builds a baseball field, and all these old-time baseball players show up, and one of them is his dad. And he sees his dad as a young man, and he says, I, I never thought of him as a young man. I only saw him when he was worn down by life. All your dads were worn down by life, by the way, because you are too, right? So he sees his dad, this young, like, handsome, athletic, 20-something-year-old. He says, I'm not even a glint in his eye. And then he gets to meet his dad. And he's introducing his dad, like, he won't call him dad yet. And he says, my wife's my daughter. Hi, it's so nice to meet you. Then his dad's like, well, I've got to go. And he walks away, and he's like, and then Kevin Costner finally goes there. He says, hey, dad, you want to have a catch? Yeah, and the dad says, I would like that. And they'd start playing catch. Roll the credits. I remember seeing that in college with my friends. We walked out of theater and we were all crying so nobody would look at each other. <laughs> we're all like, yeah, man, that was pretty good. Yeah, let's go get some tacos, you know. Time to eat, I'm hungry. Um, but uh, anyway, so I'm going to wrap up now. The heart of what I want wanted you to walk away with today is that whatever level of rejection you've experienced from your human, sinful, earthly father, you will never experience from God. Your God loves and has forgiven your dad, loves and has forgiven you, and you will have a chance to play catch with your dad someday. Thanks for coming. Have a great rest of the day.